0: We live in a world that is forever changing from one day to the next. Now add to that an inner world that is forever at odds with itself. How does one accomplish anything when the only thing that is certain is uncertainty? Welcome to the Lifting with Bipolar podcast, the show designed to be an educational safe haven offering real-world solutions for real-world people. My name is Jonathan Sharko. Living with Bipolar One in today's world is a double-edged sword but I'm here to work through it with you. Let's get right into today's episode.
1: Alrighty, folks, welcome to another episode of the Lifting with Bipolar podcast. Uh, I'm very fortunate enough to have somebody on the podcast today who has lived experience with bipolar disorder. Uh, We'll kind of just jump right into maybe introductions. Uh, Nicole, maybe kind of introduce yourself to the audience before we get, I mean, we're going to have a free flowing conversation and really who knows what we're going to touch on, but it's really going to be a great conversation. I'm very excited to see where it takes us and just talk about both of our lived experiences. So, Nicole, maybe kinda of take or take some time and take as much time as you need, maybe introduce yourself to the audience, tell us who you are, tell us what you're up to and things like that. Okay.
2: Um, my my name's Nicole Fernandez, I'm 26. I've been studying to be an English teacher for the last four years. And outside of that, um, I've just been working a lot and I've made a lot of friends, lost a lot of friends. Uh the main reason I've been away from the public lately because I haven't been posting as much as I used to and I haven't really been talking to people as much as I used to is because um, I've been having manic episodes a lot lately, like, frequently. And it's been causing me to want to withdraw and kind of, like, just focus on myself and try to figure out how to treat people better. But, um, yeah, getting new medication, like, well, not my really new medication, but a higher dosage of my medication and, like, actually... Mm-hmm getting into like a flow of like, like you talk about your podcast, going to the gym, just trying to like be active at the same time and like try to like involve everything that I can because I know that mania like gets lowered whenever you exercise and that, all that stuff. So um, yeah, that's basically all that's been going on personally. And then in my own life, like I've just been studying a lot whenever it comes to how to educate people on bipolar disorder because me and my boyfriend we finally got to that point where it's no longer you need to get more help even though he knows we're getting all this help for me and it's transitioning into okay these manic episodes are going to keep happening so like what are we going to do so Mm -hmm. I'm taking time away from my home just to like not freak out on my family and I'm coming over to my boyfriend's house and we've just been kind of doing that. And then I've been working out in trucky, just trying to change my environment and do pretty much anything I can to limit the episodes. Even if I had to cut out a few people that were slightly judgmental, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I think routine is really uh, something that I really try to rely on when I'm, um, dealing with my bipolar, my manic episodes, I had a manic episode last, uh, last summer as well. And they've kind of been seeing to get, getting a few fewer and far between, which is nice. But me and my wife and my family know there's always one on the horizon. So it's always best to prepare. And it's just kind of like getting into the daily routine, getting into, you know, eating, sleeping, uh, getting your circadian rhythm, like going to bed at the same time, practicing good sleep hygiene, practicing good exercise routine. Not to say that none of these are really the magic pill, or really, and you know, taking medications and doing those things—not to say that these are really going to nip it in the bud or whatever like, how you want to say—but just a combination, whatever you can really do to be proactive. So it's good to hear that you're trying to be proactive and really um, kind of set yourself up to kind of get through this wave that you're kind of going through right now. Um, so I commend you for that. And then, yeah, I can totally relate to. I know you maybe glossed over just gaining friends and losing friends, and oh my goodness, I can totally relate to that. Just you know, you, you're you in once, you know, people will well, gravitate towards you, be so kind to you, and then you have a manic episode, and then you're not really granted in your right state of mind. And I know I've said some things and not in my state of mind, and man, bridges burned, and people never want to talk to you again. And then you try to explain to them, no, I have a mental disorder and some of those things, and then just, they still don't want to hear it, which is really disheartening, because um, it's not really, personally, in my experiences, when I'm manic, it hasn't been really a true reflection of who I am as a person. So, yeah, some of those things are really tough to to deal with. So, um can you assess to maybe kind of maybe we can touch on that topic first is just like dealing with friendships and social connections and social support when you're dealing with, uh, you know, when you're living with bipolar disorder.
2: Honestly, it really depends on like where you're, because every person is the culmination of every single experience that they've had, the people that they were raised around, the city they're in, the communities they choose to feel comfortable around and all of those stem from your childhood and it doesn't go away. So, whenever it comes to, like, friendships and everything like that, my family was not functional whatsoever. And none of them admitted to having any sort of mental illness, any sort of problem. There were, we had some drug addicts in our family, too, that were, like, parental figures to both me and my cousin. My my cousins, essentially, like, my sister, were only six months and one day apart. Mm -hmm. So, like... Um, whenever we would deal with stuff, we wouldn't call each other and be calm and collected. We wouldn't go to the other house and try to have a conversation. Instead, my family would drive straight over to my house, knock on the door until somebody answered, come in, start screaming, and then the whole conversation would be us literally trying to speak over each other and fight and like get the last word. And even more than that, like, whenever I was younger, um, not really even even younger, like, 14, 15, 16,
0: Mm -hmm. all throughout
2: those ages, me and my cousin would, um, we were best friends, but in my mind, like, it was still family, too. We would constantly cross boundaries, and none of our family had boundaries. It was one of those things where, like, I went on a like I went on a hiking trip and one of my uncles thought it was appropriate to tell me that he wanted to have sexual relations with me casually and the whole family defended him. And then whenever it came to and I fighting, if she wanted something, she didn't ask, she'd go to my house, tear up my room, grab her shit and leave. And that's Mm -hmm. how I was raised. And with my sister too, anytime she pissed me off, anytime she wanted something, she would go in my room, grab it. She would ruin my things And I'd go in her room and pour soda all over her mattress. It's like, that's how I was raised. And, like, trying to get, like, I've gotten out of that, obviously, because that's, I'm 26, so that was, like, 10 years ago. But, like, there's so many little triggers that happen whenever I'm friends with people. Like, and the biggest trigger is whenever people tell me, like, you need to go get help. Because it's like, do you think I enjoy freaking out on people that I love. Do you think I enjoy making people feel like shit and like saying things that I really don't mean Mm -hmm. and getting violent and overreacting, overreacting just because my emotions are so heightened and I can't calm them down. Like that's one of my biggest triggers is whenever people tell me like, you need to go get help. It's like, no matter how much help you get bipolar disorder it does not, you can't get rid of manic episodes. Like it says, even online, people can get down to one a year, but like typical people that are bipolar that are still figuring out their medication, still like getting out of all these traumatic experiences that they experienced as a child, and like behaving like a normal person in society when you never had a model to begin with. Like all of those things culminated, and then people telling you, that you need help, that you need to do this, you need to like try all these new things that I've already researched. Like, it's just, it gets disheartening because no matter what, people just want you around when it's convenient, when you're at a high point, when you're happy. And then as soon as you show any sign of being bipolar, being sad, or being suicidal for even like five minutes, because sometimes it does literally just last for five minutes, then you switch into being angry. It's like, Nobody takes Mm -hmm. those things into consideration and realizes, like, I'm not doing this purposely. My brain is freaking the fuck out. And maybe if, like, you give me some time, I can calm down. They just take it as, you're a fucking crazy person. And then that's how I've lost so many fucking friends. They just tell me I'm toxic, unhealthy. I don't know how to control my emotions just because they have witnessed one or two manic episodes.
1: Yeah, no, I can totally relate to that. I came from a relatively of a, a broken home. My father passed away when I was very young. Um, raised in a single parent household and a household that really had no boundaries. I know my my sister and my brother and my mom. We would always kind of talk behind each other's backs and keep secrets. They wouldn't really sit down at the traditional family table and kind of hash things out. So it was really like not the best ways of communicating in there. And then um, with my current family and my extended family and some of those things, like you know, they don't see they only want me around when I'm doing well. And it's just so common. I've kind of had to set my own personal boundary to no matter how well I'm doing now, I kind of have to limit really, really, truly, honestly limit. And it breaks my heart because it's like my family and my immediate, my, my extended family. It's like, I really have to limit the contact I have with them because, you know, it it builds me up. I get so excited. I, my emotions, you know, I, I, I'm bipolar one. My emotions are just, you know, when I love, I love harder than anybody else. When I'm sad, I'm sadder than anybody else. And, you know, I, I try to view it as a gift and, you know, not so much a curse, but it's like, you know, a lot, a lot of the artists, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but like a lot of our great artists and poets and some of those things were, you know, afflicted with mental illness. And that's why we have so many great works of art that we can, that other people who aren't afflicted with these things can appreciate because they have such emotions. And, but yeah, I can totally relate to, it's just really breaks my heart because I can, um, yeah, it just really breaks my heart because people, we don't talk anymore and, uh, they don't see me how well I'm doing all because a glimmer or a little. a little shimmer of a uh, mania would appear with my, with my bipolar one, I wouldn't get so much suicidal, but it was the mania that would really scare people. And, oh, he's violent. And, you know, the whole stigma that men with mental illness are violent really needs to dissipate because oftentimes uh, we're actually the victims of violence. We're not actually the people who are committing harm. We're really committing harms against ourselves or um, interactions with the police or some of those things. So, yeah, it really breaks my heart because men, you know, I'm a male who is living with bipolar one and I'm just viewed as dangerous and I have tattoos and I'm, you know, I can say things and maybe intimidate people when I'm not in the right state of mind. When I'm in a manic state of mind, I can be really aggressive in some of those things. And it just breaks my heart because it's not really a true reflection of, of who I am. And yeah, coming from kind of a broken home and some of those things, I can totally relate to, to your journey as well. So, um, do you notice the difference between how them, how like men or, uh, people who identify as female or are treated in the, in the mental health community in the mental health and maybe specifically the bipolar space.
2: I honestly feel like whenever it comes to women, um, there's a, there's a community because mm-hmm. women are, there's this new trend where women are trying to become uh, influencers because they're advocates and they'll use that influence to gain a following and do all these things and most of those people, if you try to message them or try to get advice, they ignore you or they think that their disorder is more important, that they shouldn't relate to you and I know that isn't really relevant to this conversation, but it's just one of those things where like women where like throughout history, we have been trying to build a movement to be more inclusive. And accept each other for our mental health issues and support one another. And girls do that online really, really well. And then in person, it works too, as long as you don't freak the fuck out, freak out and <laughs> have a manic episode. Um, and then that's kind of over. But whenever it comes to men, um, like my biological dad, he has the same type of bipolar that I have. Like I said, but he's untreated and he, he has the grandest delusions and it's really scary because like people that don't understand bipolar, like how I didn't understand it my whole life until like the last couple years, I was just terrified of him because he would have a manic episode and like get super violent and like scream and like his, like, I'm pretty sure everybody notices, like, whenever you get into a manic episode, your eyes change. Like, you look like you're going to murder the person, and the- they get scared of that, because your eyes severely change, and your whole facial expression just doesn't even look like you anymore. And, um, you know, women are usually treated with more care and, like, love, because they... For some, I don't know why, but like women are treated more with love whenever it comes to mental illness because people assume that women are going to take care of themselves. And I think that a lot of people assume that men should just take care of themselves without therapy, that they should not have to like take medication in order to control their emotions, and that men shouldn't be violent no matter what. And Mm -hmm. it's not about a gender thing, it's like, No matter who you are, no matter what gender you are, if you have bipolar, not every person expresses it the same way, but there always is some sort of violence that comes out if it gets too bad. And, like, that's what's really scary because my biological dad, like, nearly beat my mom to death. And that's why I was scared of him. But so many other men out there, like you, take care Mm -hmm. of themselves, take medication, do everything they can. And as soon as they mention that they're bipolar, they get ghosted. And then whenever women say something like that, they're like other people, like even guys that are trying to just get with them. They're like, Oh, I understand. Blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as you see any, it's, that's what I, that's what I see is that like women get all this grace, but as soon as men do something, it's like, Nope. Let's cut them off and then publicly shame them so that nobody ever talks to them again.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I was, uh, my first manic episode was my senior year of college. I had been, um, here in locally. I'm originally from Las Vegas, but I came up here to go to the university of Adarino. I was, uh, working for, you know, I'm not afraid to say this. These guys are, they're, they're good guys and we can always connect down the line. They're living their lives. They're not gonna listen to this podcast. If they do great, I encourage them to reach out to me and we can reconnect. But, um, was working for the Nevada men's basketball team as a student manager for four or five years for my, my fifth year senior and had my manic episode. And yeah, I was, had a, you know, had a restraining order against me. I would got, um, I got uh, charged. I was, you know, ended up, ended up going to Boulevard, the local jail here in Reno and um got a charge for like disturbing the peace and stalking and some of those things because I was just on a bender, just sending really threatening text messages and just not in my right state of mind. And, um, I, unfortunately I didn't have the money for bail. So sure enough, I spent about, uh, I think I, the first, t- the first go around in jail, I spent about six months in Par Boulevard wearing the red suit and the mental health ward, um, and those things. And, you know, when I did eventually get out on a probation and a probate, probation program and a, a mental health court program here in, in Reno, my, when I was uh, 23, 24, there was nobody, you know, nobody was there to, to pick me up from, uh, you know, the jail stop. No, I wasn't, you know, surrounded by, you know, hugs and kisses and things like that. And trying to be supportive, it was like, Hey, don't go around him. I was, this was still, you know, within a year span, I was still, you know, told not to go around the university or some of those places. And when I did run into people, it was just really awkward because there was just this stigma. I was like, man, it's like, and all I really want to do is just break down and give them a hug and say, I'm so sorry. It wasn't me. I didn't know I was bipolar. And, and, um, you know, it took me a while to, to kind of accept that I was using cannabis at the time. It was very popular. I was just living the college experience. I was taking ecstasy, taking Molly. Um, I was using cannabis. I was just Partying it up and living, doing whatever you kind of college student was supposed to be doing, not sleeping, not taking care of myself. Um, fast forward, I did. I kind of repeated that cycle and did the same thing. And sure enough, I was. I was. Uh, you know, a couple of years later, I was back in Par Boulevard, and I was like, "Man, this time has got to be different. I can't keep doing this to myself. I have to take my mental, my mental health this seriously." It was when I was thirty. I'm now thirty-five. That was about five years ago, and. Um, I told myself, I was like, if I get here again, like, there's no way I'm coming back. I'm going to be, you know, walking 4th Street downtown on the bus stop trying to, you know, ask for change or be homeless and some of those things. And just really had to really um, look myself in the mirror. You got nothing else to do when you're, you know, I was on, I was on 23 hour lockdown, like isolation. Like, you know, they didn't really put me around other people because I was on suicide watch and on a suicide watch while I was in jail and some of those things. And that's where a lot I'm of my PTSD kind of developed. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I would, they would kind of, when I would have my temper tantrums in my gel cell and I would kind of uh, flood my cell and some of those things, you know, I'd get flooded with, the, uh, my cell would be flooded with guards and some of those things and they would hold me down and inject me with a concoction. That would knock me out and then I'd wake up in the, uh, they call it the Barney Rebel suit, but they don't give you any clothes. They don't give you a pillow, any sheets or anything. You can harm yourself. It's just like a carpet rug that you probably use for moving, but it's just got Velcro and it's just to cover your body and things like that. So that's definitely where a lot of my PTSD kind of came from and kind of what I've been working on with my therapist and, I've um, been working on this thing called cognitive processing therapy. And um, some of my sticking points that you kind of go over is like, Oh, sticking point is like, Oh, I'm a violent person. People can't trust me. And those are some things that I've been able to really work through the past five years. But yeah, it just sucks because I'm identified and I'm a, I'm a bit of a stockier guy. I can be you know, viewed as dangerous and definitely I've, I've seen my mug shots. I've seen my eyes. And it's just like, that's not who I am in a picture. It's just totally unrecognizable. Um, so yeah, definitely, I, and not to say, women who haven't been jailed or some of those things haven't maybe had the same experiences and things like that. But we're, I think more in generalities, I think you're on the right track. And, you know, when a guy meets a girl who's identifies as bipolar one or schizophrenic, it's like, you know, it's like, oh man, maybe this girl's in for a good time. I know the crazy ones carry are probably better, probably a better good time. And, you know, I know we're kind of speaking yeah. of having a raw episode, but it's like, oh yeah, the, the crazier ones really know how to get down. I don't mind messing with them. And then when the shit really hits the fan, I can just always bail on them. So. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate, yeah, having a chance to really open up about that. Cause it really does stick home for me because I really have tried to turn my life around the past five years and kind of identify a new persona and not be as active on social media. I think when I did have my manic episodes, I was super active. This was when Facebook was more popular than Instagram. I would be posting hundred times a day and it would just be like really excessive posting. And that was like a symptom that I've kind of learned that is, uh, when I see it from my other friends in my local communities, that's really when a time to reach out because that can really, um, lead to like um the symptoms of like a manic episode coming on so um I don't know if you can really identify kind of sold the microphone for a couple minutes with anything I said or I don't know how you handle social media as well when you're dealing with some of this uh, kind of mood when your mood fluctuates
2: It's bad um so whenever I'm the same way like people I've had a I've had only one person who's schizophrenic so it's like it's it could be both of us causing each other to like trigger each other about the same time this person has been unmedicated forever has stabbed through her dad's door and is afraid of me messaging her over and over again and she um she and two of these influencers that she's dating that were supposed to be advocates for social sorry for um mental illness all of them berated me because I called, I'm not going to lie, for four hours straight because I was mm-hmm. so manic. And the only reason I was so manic was because before that happened, um, me and this girl, we stopped being friends because I got manic once. And she was like, you're a dangerous person. I don't want to be around you. And how that worked out was... um she said that she wanted to just be in an open relationship. She doesn't want to date anybody exclusively. And I was like, okay, well that's fine. And she called me her girlfriend. She called me her best friend. She texted me every single day. She had suicidal episodes. She'd freak out and I'd go right to her. I would do everything basically for her. And I wanted to make her happy. Mm -hmm. And, um, one day I officially asked her, I was like, so are we dating? And she says, no, I'm waiting until this one guy tells me if he wants to be with me or not, and then we'll see. And I... Like, Mm -hmm. that just fucking spun me. Because in my mind, like, my family is... It's more like... That's another thing with my family. They either love you, or they fucking hate you. There's no in-between. It's either like, oh my god, I love you so much, or you're neglected, or... You did something wrong. So we're going to ignore you for seven months. Like my family does that shit. So whenever that happened. um, I got really upset. Because I was like. Why would you just tell me this. And you're calling me your girlfriend. And everything like that. And I got really really drunk. Like you said. Like substances don't really fucking help. Mm -hmm. And I ended up calling her. I told her everything that I thought about her. I investigated. Like. Every bipolar does, just to make sure that I'm not the crazy one, to make sure that I'm not the person that's wrong. And I investigated, found out her ex boyfriend felt the exact same way. And the ex boyfriend still wanted to have sex with her, so he took her side. They both spread a bunch of rumors about me about how I'm crazy. Everybody blocked me. And then Mm -hmm. out of nowhere, she unblocked me and she said, Yeah, let's be friends. I worked on that. I messaged her like maybe once, like maybe once or twice a month because I figured she was busy. Then out of nowhere, she blocks me after I send her a message saying I've been having issues, not like, I really want to figure out like how you handle when you get episodes and you don't want them to happen. And then I mentioned, I'm like, I know you're friends with this influencer who is like super into like BPD and like helping people with triggers and stuff. So maybe you can help me. Mm-hmm. And I messaged that same girl, the influencer, and I said, I know that, you know, this girl that I was friends with in the past, and I just want to figure out this sort of thing. All three of them blocked me, and I was like, in my mind, I'm like, I thought we were going to be friends again. What is going on? And I just asked for help. And then I called, yeah. like I said, a million fucking times, and then every single time um, they answered the phone, which was only three times which is usually the case when you call a million times. Um, Mm -hmm. Every single time they just warned they were going to call the police for harassment. And it made me so upset because I was like, I, I genuinely didn't know or think that I was harassing her. All I was thinking about in my head was if I keep calling her, she'll answer the phone and we'll eventually talk about this. That's all I kept thinking. And that was like, I have OCD also, so like it obsessively over and over again, I'm like, if I just keep calling and keep calling, they'll answer. And I realize that's not the fucking solution. And the only thing that I can do to help is give my boyfriend my phone, but I was alone at the time. So it just got so out of hand. And not only that, I got, I got a DUI once because mm-hmm. I got so upset. With one of my boyfriends i took xanax and drank and drove and nearly died i flipped Mm -hmm. my car over a six foot edge or ledge and even before that i was hospitalized because i tried choking myself out in the bathroom because i wanted to just pass out because i learned at the boys and girls club that if you just choke yourself out a little bit you'll fall asleep and that was all I was thinking about because the boyfriend that I had at the time was verbally abusive and it wasn't helping. And then he called the police on me and I went to the hospital. So it's like everything that you talked about, I totally relate to. And it sucks because it's like, even though all that stuff happened to me, I tell someone and they're like still willing to be friends with me just because I'm a pretty girl. And then as soon as I fucking have an episode, everything gets cut off. And then whenever it comes to you, you just, like, act like yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: have, like, an episode. It just sounds like you don't have too many. Like, as much as I do, I have, like, maybe two, two to three a month at this point. Maybe mm-hmm. lower if it's, like, better. But it's really, really... Discomforting because it's like these people are attacking you without even knowing what's going on in your mind.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, it's really hard to develop it. Just uh, more than superficial relationships, really to develop intimate relationships and in some of those things. Like, uh, like for example, like at work, like where the, my place of employment, like a few people know, like my close team knows but it's not something that I try to to broadcast in that kind of setting. And it's just, um, I think we're, I think we're both young, attractive people, and yeah, just people kind of gravitate towards you again for superficial reasons. So it's just like really disheartening when you really want to get to know somebody and, you know, we care, you know, when we meet somebody, we want to be there, you know, not just be, um, not like a wild friendship or things like that, but we really get connected to these people because we value the social support. We just get those, those good feelings of having a good social support network because we both know what it's coming. I mean, dating back to our childhood, like the power of connection and dealing with and, you know, meeting people and some of those things. So I think, you know, it just, it's just disheartening. You just got to keep finding your tribe. Like I, I do have, uh, I've noticed because I do like use like the mood chart and some of those things that kind of just ensue, I'm just, I just had to get to a point where I have to be super hypervisional of those things. Like I have like a, a sleep tracker device I keep on my ring or my finger. And, um, I try to, you know, when I notice I'm not sleeping, I know that's like a, a cause for concern. And, uh, I think just kind of tying back the conversation into like medications and sobriety, like, I think those two, I think those two, for me personally, my lived experiences, like from when I got dose, diagnosed to 23 to the age of about 30, like I was not, uh, you know, consistently taking my medications. I was still um, using cannabis. I was actually a bud tender in Las Vegas when I was living down there. I was, had a CBD company. I was very, you know, uh, grandiose and thinking I could do these things and just really, really, it really had to. I was working with a drug counselor. I had to write a love letter and a, and, a, and a goodbye letter to Mary Jane because it was just like, you're not doing me any good anymore. We kind of kind of have to break up and kind of have to go down this yeah, new yeah. path with these new medications. And it's very difficult when you when you meet these psychiatrists. They're like, well, we're going to have to try a lot of different medications because, again, it's an art, not a science. It's not like a heart condition where we can where we know for sure that we can give you this blood thinner or this thing for your blood pressure and it'll work right away. Like we're going to have to – you have to buckle up you know, buckle up for these side effects, buckle up for feeling like a zombie, buckle up for feeling for having weight gain, buckle up for all kinds of things. And uh, until we find the right ones, and it's going to be really frustrating and really easy to kind of, after a while, a few medications that you don't find clicking and you're dealing with the side effects to just say, yeah, uh, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to go off these meds and kind of handle it how I was handling it before, because I got nothing else. This this thing isn't working for me. So, um, but I I really am proud and I really want to get the message out, at least personally, for those listening to my podcast, I'm a big proponent of, taking your medications and living a sober life, at least for those who are living with bipolar one, because for me, um, it's just been the best I've been able to, I still had a manic episode. I was looking back at my sleep chart, like back about a month ago, about five to six weeks ago, I was definitely manic for about two or three days where I didn't sleep and some of those things, but just being hypervisional, hyper-aware of it, was able to take uh, my sleep medications, which I take as needed, and uh, I don't really like to disclose what kind of medications I take, just because to each their own, and I don't want to get to okay. the rabbit hole of saying, "Hey, this medication works for me," and then they go to their therapist or their psychiatrist and they'll say, "Put me on this medication," because Jonathan on the Living with Bipolar podcast said uh, this medication works. Like everybody's got to find their own meds, but you do—you definitely yeah. have to work closely with your psychiatrist and have an open mind to just living a sober life and taking these medications, because it's just like you know we've heard this thing before. It's like if I had diabetes and I need my insulin every day people wouldn't judge me. So it just goes in the same boat. So, um, how, how has your journey with sobriety and kind of medications been going for you? I know you have an example with your father who, who is not taking medications. Does that kind of have any effect on you and how you take and how you approach your mental illness?
2: It was until <clears throat> I wanted to do therapy. I started in 2019 and I wanted to try to do it without medication because Whenever I was younger, um, I got sexually assaulted and I took anti-anxiety medication and it really, like, it gave me panic attacks instead of actually helping. And my mom, uh, I'm not going to say she's not supportive whenever it comes to medication, but at the same time, she's not necessarily, like, a huge believer in it. Like, she takes pain medication and, like, one antidepressant because she has um muscular dystrophy so she literally can't like move or do anything and she always has pain but whenever it comes to like anti-anxiety medication or like my sister uh she had uh ODD and that was something that was a huge problem it was like both of her kids were like having issues and needing medication my little sister she uh She basically got pushed to the side and she was forced to take these medications for ODD and that's not even what she had. She later found out that she had a different disorder completely and the medication that she was taking was making it worse. And whenever I started taking medication, I saw how much trouble my mom was going through with my sister and, like, taking her to the doctor and, like, getting all these medications and constantly, like... That's the one thing that was also really, really, really sad was that my mom wanted to find the perfect medication to make my sister not even talk or act out. And she was like a zombie. And she was only, she was only eight or nine when this started. Mm -hmm. So that whole process, we're only, I'm like five years older than her. Um... That's when the whole thing happened and I started taking medication. I started getting anxiety attacks. And I told my mom I was like, I just don't want to take medication anymore because I didn't want to go through the whole process. My little sister went through because she was literally a zombie and it sucked. And um I don't know. So whenever I went through the whole medic or sorry, the whole therapy thing, my therapist eventually told me, like, you need to try medication because none of the tactics we're using are working like you're constantly anxious you're constantly depressed your mood swings are uncontrollable your violent attitude is uncontrollable we need to try something and I got connected with a doctor that um treated my mom so he knew my family history and he really really helped me with that but I think the really hard part is is that Even therapists don't understand bipolar because I've been fired by therapists before Mm -hmm. because they said that they couldn't handle what I was doing and they didn't want to, they didn't have the expertise to help me figure out what I needed, which basically essentially means I'm giving up on you, go find someone else. And that's kind of where it got hard because I was like... I got so close with this therapist took two years, got really close with her, Talked to her like once a week. I paid her so fu- so much money to mm-hmm. just help me. And then out of nowhere, she fires me because she says that she just can't figure out a way to help me. And that's another thing too, is like people don't understand that like, you can't just go to therapy and you're going to be fine. Like you need to find a good therapist that actually cares about you. And, gives you medication and like tries like what you were saying, like there's a huge period where you're trying all these medications and you get all crazy because you're trying to find the ones that work. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have the right support during that process, it makes it even worse. And then it makes people want to give up on even taking medication. And that's another problem is like the mental health community in reno is trying to be supportive of giving mental health like treatments and stuff but then you go and see these free counselors and they treat you like
1: yeah like just another case file yeah like they have a whole stack and you're just like just another just another number that they got to get through like no real quality time to connect with them and really listen and yeah, especially when you're dealing with these free with these free ones with this public uh, public mental health wellness, it's just really not where it's sh- as as, as my, in my opinion the standard of that should be compared to maybe other places around the country or maybe even in other countries or, or across the globe. So, yeah, yeah.
2: Definitely.
1: Have you found Have you found any type of like peer support here in locally in Reno yet? I do have uh, some ideas. Maybe we could plug on the show as well. But um, have you have you had any luck with like finding peer support? Others maybe others who are walking with you with you who understand
2: really um my best friend one of my best friends she isn't diagnosed with anything but she has a lot of similar habits as I do but Mm -hmm. she's able to control it more than I can in her mind so she doesn't feel the need to take medication and she's also like a a green witch so she concocts her own stuff like she'll just put herbs together and like try to like make sure that she like takes care of like the things that are missing as naturally as possible so whenever it comes to her and my boyfriend um I have a really really strong support system but whenever it comes to like my family it's they're only supportive when I'm like like you said the emotions are so high whenever you love someone you're happy you're just like Mm -hmm. the Sweetest, most like enjoyable person to be around, and then whenever you're sad and depressed, they just don't want anything to do with you, and it's like, yeah. So I have like, you know, two really good people that I can count on, and also like community people like online. I think the Mm -hmm. online community is more important, not more important, but more of prevalent for me because in Reno, like, it's hard for me to even go out and talk to people because I have such I have so much, like, confusion and guilt and, like, paranoia constantly that, like, if I talk to someone and I become friends with them, are they going to figure out that I'm bipolar and they're going to hate me? Like, am I going to tell them something that's going to scare them and they're just going to walk away? Like, that's been one problem. And I don't make a lot of friends because of that. Because I'm just fucking terrified. Like, I've been... I've been told that I've been crazy so many times, and told that I've needed help so many times that it's gotten to the point where it's like I am like scared to make friends.
1: Yeah, and Reno is such a Reno can be such a big city. At the same time, it can be such a small city. Everybody can kind of know each other. It really doesn't take that many to. I'm just I'm sure just like in L.A. or Chicago or New York, you know, uh, or anywhere in the world, you know, no, no matter how big of a city you maybe move to, I know. I was talking to a therapist when I was kind of going through my things. I was like, I'm just going to move back to Vegas. And he's like, you know, it'll always, everybody kind of knows each other. It's not really, you can't really run away from these things. And, um, with my family, like with my therapist, she had a great analogy. Like it's kind of like a light switch. Like my family is like, it's all or nothing. Like when the lights are on, it's all, it's all on. And then when the lights are off, it's all off where really it should be more of like a light dimmer where it should be like a spectrum and you can kind of uh, go up and down and maybe dim the lights or maybe brighten the lights, but it shouldn't have to be this all or nothing, like in or out love, like love type of thing. So. Um, I would encourage other people who are listening there, maybe who are, have a friend or a family member who is dealing with mental illness, like not to do the all or nothing, just to give them space to kind of, uh, go through their, their, go through their emotions and, and just be supportive. And I think for for our own privacy and connection, maybe not on this podcast, I'm going to broadcast kind of the peer support that we have offered in Reno just for, for my own, uh, for my own protection, because I don't want people crashing the party and for, for Nicole's own protection out there, but. Um, there are, there are things that I'm aware of in the local community that we're kind of developing right now and just to, to support each other, because I think peer support has just been tremendous for me. I found a, a peer support group maybe two or three years ago, and it's just been really nice to walk into a room where there's no professionals there. There's just people who are walking in your shoes, who are living the same thing. And you can really just have a rapport kind of how Nicole and I, if you're listening to this entire episode, just kind of was able to wrap for about 40 minutes here and just share stories. So, um, Nicole, maybe where are some things I know where we had, maybe we'll kind of cut things off here right now, but um, tell tell us some of the things that maybe the projects you're working on, maybe where other people, this will be on Instagram, maybe where people can connect with you, especially with that online community, which I feel is so important. It's nice to meet people from all across the globe and all across the country. So where are some people who maybe have some questions or want to follow up with you? Where can they find you?
2: Well, I'm on Instagram mostly. Uh, I have a podcast also that's available on pretty much every platform called blood rituals and it's Mm -hmm. exactly how it sounds it's like an occult supernatural type of show it's not really related to bipolar but i did do an episode on bipolar and i am slowly moving into creating a separate podcast uh based on a clothing line that i'm putting together that is also on my instagram um called just like bipolar baddies because we're so bad bitches. We're so cool. (laughs) And it's really cute. And, um, all the links for everything that anybody ever needs is on my main account, which is, it's called gynecologist. It looks like gynecologist, but gene like Ed Gene. Okay. And, uh, (laughs) yeah, you could find all that stuff there. Um, I'll start doing the bipolar podcast I'm thinking about next week. I'm going to start splitting everything apart so that there's the supernatural stuff for everybody else on blood rituals. And then we can talk about bipolar stuff and even bipolar horror stories and, like, explain the psychology behind all of that whenever, like, bipolar baddies comes out.
1: Yeah. So. I loved your That's episode. I listened. It. I listened to that episode on the uh, on the Blood Rituals podcast. Your your bipolar episode it was really great, really in depth. Uh, had a lot of great knowledge. I'm excited to to hear about this split, and we'll we'll kind of funnel people towards your your gynaecologist. Gyneco- I hope I'm saying that right, gynaecologist. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll funnel those all people in the show notes to catch you there, and really kind of see what you're doing, and then with your clothing line and all the all the fun projects you're working on. Like, it really is kind of the the perk about. Um, At least in my experience, I can speak for myself like it really is fun, you know, staying up late at night and having these, you know, I don't want to say grandiose ideas like I'm going to be president, but just really being creative and just having the entrepreneurial spirit to kind of start these things and put these things into motion. So, uh, Nicole, thank you so much for coming on today and really uh, having a great session. Thank you for allowing me to open up and be transparent. Some of those things I haven't had a chance to talk to you about yet. And I hope that we can uh, do some more collaborations and some more episodes in the future.
2: Absolutely. I love talking
1: to you. <laughs> I love talking to you too, sister. Alrighty, <laughs> we'll go. That concludes another episode of the Lifting with Bipolar podcast. Please check out the show notes for more information on how to stay connected with us. Thank you guys so much. Thanks.
0: I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Lifting with Bipolar. Stay connected with me directly through JonathanCharco.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at Jonathan Charco. As always, thank you for pushing your mindset and heart towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to please leave a review of the podcast, as well as subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, be kind to yourself and each other.